Chapter Eleven of Green Mantle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Green Mantle by John Buchan. Chapter Eleven The Companions of the Rosy Hours. We battled to a corner where a jut of buildings stood out into the street. It was our only chance to protect our backs to stand up with the rib of stone between us. It was only the work of seconds. One instant we were groping our solitary way in the darkness, the next we were pinned against a wall with a throaty mob surging round us. It took me a moment or two to realize that we were attacked. Every man has one special funk in the back of his head, and mine was to be the quarry of an angry crowd. I hated the thought of it, the mess, the blind struggle, the sense of unleashed passions different from those of any single blackguard. It was a dark world to me, and I don't like darkness. But in my nightmares I had never imagined anything just like this. The narrow, fetid street, with the icy winds fanning the filth, the unknown tongue, the hoarse, savage murmur, and my utter ignorance as to what it might be all about, made me cold in the pit of my stomach. "'We've got it in the neck this time, old man,' I said to Peter, who had out the pistol the commandant at Rushchuk had given him. These pistols were our only weapons. The crowd saw them and hung back, but if they chose to rush us it wasn't much of a barrier two pistols would make. Rasta's voice had stopped. He had done his work and had retired to the background. There were shouts from the crowd, Alaman, and a word, Kafia, constantly repeated. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but now I know that they were after us because we were Boshes and spies. There was no love lost between the Constantinople scum and their new masters. It seemed an ironical end for Peter and me to be done in because we were Boshes. And done in we should be. I had heard of the East as a good place for people to disappear in. There were no inquisitive newspapers or incorruptible police. I wished to heaven I had a word of Turkish. But I made my voice heard for a second in a pause in the din, and shouted that we were German sailors who had brought down big guns for Turkey and were going home next day. I asked them what the devil they thought we had done. I don't know if any fellow there understood German. Anyhow, it only brought a pandemonium of cries in which that ominous word, Kafia, was predominant. Then Peter fired over their heads. He had to, for a chap was pawing at his throat. The answer was a clatter of bullets on the wall above us. It looked as if they meant to take us alive, and that, I was very clear, should not happen. Better a bloody end in a street scrap than the tender mercies of that bandbox bravo. I don't know quite what happened next. A press drove down at me, and I fired. Someone squealed, and I looked the next moment to be strangled. And then, suddenly, the scrimmage ceased, and there was a wavering splash of light in that pit of darkness. I never went through many worse minutes than these. When I had been hunted in the past weeks, there had been mystery enough, but no immediate peril to face. When I had been up against a real, urgent, physical risk like Luz, the danger, at any rate, had been clear. One knew what one was in for. But here was a threat I couldn't put a name to, and it wasn't in the future, but pressing hard at our throats. And yet I couldn't feel it was quite real. The patter of the pistol bullets against the wall, like so many crackers, the faces felt rather than seen in the dark, the clamor, which to me was pure gibberish, at all the madness of a nightmare. Only Peter, cursing steadily in Dutch by my side, was real. And then the light came, and made the scene more eerie. It came from one or two torches carried by wild fellows with long staves, 
who drove their way into the heart of the mob. The flickering glare ran up the steep walls and made monstrous shadows. The wind swung the flame into long streamers, dying away in a fan of sparks. And now a new word was heard in the crowd. It was Chingana, shouted not in anger, but in fear. At first I could not see the newcomers. They were hidden in the deep darkness under their canopy of light, for they were holding their torches high at the full stretch of their arms. They were shouting, too, wild, shrill cries ending sometimes in a gush of rapid speech. Their words did not seem to be directed against us, but against the crowd. A sudden hope came to me that for some unknown reason they were on our side. The press was no longer heavy against us. It was thinning rapidly, and I could hear the scuffle as men made off down the side streets. My first notion was that these were the Turkish police, but I changed my mind when the leader came out into a patch of light. He carried no torch, but a long stave with which he belabored the heads of those who were too tightly packed to flee. It was the most eldritch apparition you can conceive, a tall man dressed in skins, with bare legs and sandal-shod feet. A wisp of scarlet cloth clung to his shoulders, and drawn over his head down close to his eyes was a skull-cap of some kind of pelt, with the tail waving behind it. He capered like a wild animal, keeping up a strange high monotone that fairly gave me the creeps. I was suddenly aware that the crowd had gone. Before us was only this figure and his half-dozen companions, some carrying torches and all wearing clothes of skin. But only the one who seemed to be their leader wore the skull-cap. The rest had bare heads and long, tangled hair. The fellow was shouting gibberish at me. His eyes were glassy, like a man who smokes hemp, and his legs were never still for a second. You would think such a figure no better than a Montebank, and yet there was nothing comic in it. Fearful and sinister and uncanny it was, and I wanted to do anything but laugh. As he shouted, he kept pointing with his stave up the street, which climbed the hillside. "'He means us to move,' said Peter. "'For God's sake, let's get away from this witch-doctor.' I couldn't make sense of it, but one thing was clear. These maniacs had delivered us, for the moment, from Rasta and his friends. Then I did a dashed silly thing. I pulled out a sovereign and offered it to the leader. I had some kind of notion of showing gratitude, and as I had no words, I had to show it by deed. He brought his stick down on my wrist and sent the coin spinning in the gutter. His eyes blazed, and he made his weapon swing round my head. He cursed me. Oh, I could tell cursing well enough, though I didn't follow a word. And he cried to his followers, and they cursed me too. I had offered him a mortal insult, and stirred up a worse hornet's nest than Rasta's push. Peter and I, with a common impulse, took to our heels. We were not looking for any trouble with demoniacs. Up the steep, narrow lane we ran, with that bedlamite crowd at our heels. The torches seemed to have gone out, for the place was black as pitch, and we tumbled over heaps of offal and splashed through running drains. The men were close behind us, and more than once I felt a stick on my shoulder. But fear lent us wings, and suddenly before us was a blaze of light, and we saw the debouchement of our street in a main thoroughfare. The others saw it, too, for they slackened off. Just before we reached the light, we stopped and looked round. There was no sound or sight behind us in the dark lane which dipped to the harbour. "'This is a queer country, Cornelius,' said Peter, filling his limbs for bruises. "'Too many things happen in too short a time. I am breathless.' The big street we had struck seemed to run along the crest of the hill. There were lamps in it, and crawling cabs, and quite civilized-looking shops. We soon found the hotel to which Caprasso had directed us, a big place in a courtyard with a very tumble-down-looking portico, 
and green sun-shutters which rattled drearily in the winter's wind. It proved, as I had feared, to be packed to the door, mostly with German officers. With some trouble I got an interview with the proprietor, the usual Greek, and told him that we had been sent there by Mr. Caprasso. That didn't affect him in the least, and we would have been shot into the street if I hadn't remembered about Stumm's pass. So I explained that we had come from Germany with munitions and only wanted rooms for one night. I showed him the pass and blustered a good deal, till he became civil and said he would do the best he could for us. The best was pretty poor. Peter and I were doubled up in a small room which contained two camp beds and little else, and had broken windows through which the wind whistled. We had a wretched dinner of stringy mutton boiled with vegetables, and a white cheese strong enough to raise the dead. But I got a bottle of whiskey, for which I paid a sovereign, and we managed to light the stove in our room, fasten the shutters, and warm our hearts with a brew of toddy. After that we went to bed and slept like logs for twelve hours. On the road from Rushchuk we had had uneasy slumbers. I woke the next morning, and looking from the broken window saw that it was snowing. With a lot of trouble I got hold of a servant and made him bring us some of the treacly Turkish coffee. We were both in pretty low spirits. "'Europe is a poor cold place,' said Peter. "'Not worth fighting for. There is only one white man's land, and that is South Africa.' At the time I heartily agreed with him. I remember that sitting on the edge of my bed I took stock of our position. It was not very cheering. We seemed to have been amassing enemies at a furious pace. First of all there was Rasta, whom I had insulted, and who wouldn't forget it in a hurry. He had his crowd of Turkish riffraff, and was bound to get us sooner or later. Then there was the maniac in the skin hat. He didn't like Rasta, and I made a guess that he and his weird friends were of some party hostile to the young Turks. But on the other hand, he didn't like us, and there would be bad trouble the next time we met him. Finally, there was Stum and the German government. It could only be a matter of hours at the best before he got the Rushchuk authorities on our trail. It would be easy to trace us from Chatalja, and once they had us we were absolutely done. There was a big black dossier against us, which by no conceivable piece of luck could be upset. It was very clear to me that, unless we could find sanctuary and shed all our various pursuers during this day, we should be done in for good and all. But where on earth were we to find sanctuary? We had neither of us a word of the language, and there was no way I could see of taking on new characters. For that we wanted friends and help, and I could think of none anywhere. Somewhere to be sure there was blank iron, but how could we get in touch with him? As for Sandy, I had pretty well given him up. I always thought his enterprise the craziest of the lot and bound to fail. He was probably somewhere in Asia Minor, and a month or two later would get to Constantinople and hear in some pothouse the yarn of the two wretched Dutchmen who had disappeared so soon from men's sight. That rendezvous at Caprasso's was no good. It would have been all right if we had got here unsuspected, and could have gone on quietly frequenting the place till Blank Iron picked us up. But to do that we wanted leisure and secrecy, and here we were with a pack of hounds at our heels. The place was horribly dangerous already. If we showed ourselves there we should be gathered in by Rasta, or by the German military police, or by the madman in the skin cap. It was a stark impossibility to hang about on the off chance of meeting Blank Iron. I reflected with some bitterness that this was the seventeenth day of January, the day of our assignation. I had had high hopes all the way down the Danube of meeting with Blank Iron, for I knew he would be in time, of giving him the information I had had the good fortune to collect, of piecing it together with what he had found out, and of getting the whole story which Sir Walter hungered for. 
After that, I thought it wouldn't be hard to get away by Romania and to get home through Russia. I had hoped to be back with my battalion in February, having done as good a bit of work as anybody in the war. As it was, it looked as if my information would die with me, unless I could find blank iron before the evening. I talked the thing over with Peter, and he agreed that we were fairly up against it. We decided to go to Caprasso's that afternoon, and to trust to luck for the rest. It wouldn't do to wander about the streets, so we sat tight in our room all morning, and swapped old hunting yards to keep our minds from the beastly present. We got some food at midday, cold mutton and the same cheese, and finished our whiskey. Then I paid the bill, for I didn't dare to stay there another night. About half-past three we went into the street, without the foggiest notion where we would find our next quarters. It was snowing heavily, which was a piece of luck for us. Poor old Peter had no great coat, so we went into a Jew's shop and bought a ready-made abomination, which looked as if it might have been meant for a dissenting parson. It was no good saving my money when the future was so black. The snow made the streets deserted, and we turned down the long lane which led to Ratchik Ferry and found it perfectly quiet. I do not think we met a soul till we got to Caprasso's shop. We walked straight through the café, which was empty, and down the dark passage till we were stopped by the garden door. I knocked, and it swung open. There was the bleak yard, now puddled with snow, and a blaze of light from the pavilion at the other end. There was a scraping of fiddles, too, and the sound of human talk. We paid the negro at the door, and passed from the bitter afternoon into a garish saloon. There were forty or fifty people there, drinking coffee and syrups, and filling the air with the fumes of Latakia. Most of them were Turks in European clothes and the fez, but there were some German officers and what looked like German civilians, Army Service Corps clerks, probably, and mechanics from the arsenal. A woman in cheap finery was tinkling at the piano, and there were several shrill females with the officers. Peter and I sat down modestly in the nearest corner, where old Caprasso saw us and sent us coffee. A girl who looked like a Jewess came over to us and talked French. But I shook my head, and she went off again. Presently a girl came on the stage and danced, a silly affair, all a clashing of tambourines and wriggling. I have seen native women do the same thing better in a Mozambique chorale. Another sang a German song, a simple, sentimental thing about golden hair and rainbows, and the Germans present applauded. The place was so tinselly and common that coming to it from weeks of rough travelling it made me impatient. I forgot that, while for the others it might be a vulgar little dancing-hall, for us it was as perilous as a brigand's den. Peter did not share my mood. He was quite interested in it, as he was interested in everything new. He had a genius for living in the moment. I remember there was a drop scene on which was daubed a blue lake with very green hills in the distance. As the tobacco smoke grew thicker and the fiddles went on squealing, this tawdry picture began to mesmerize me. I seemed to be looking out of a window at a lovely summer landscape where there were no wars or danger. I seemed to feel the warm sun and to smell the fragrance of blossom from the islands. And then I became aware that a queer scent had stolen into the atmosphere. There were braziers burning at both ends to warm the room, and the thin smoke from these smelt like incense. Somebody had been putting a powder in the flames, for suddenly the place became very quiet. The fiddles still sounded, but far away like an echo. The lights went down, all but a circle on the stage, and into that circle stepped my enemy of the skin cap. He had three others with him. I heard a whisper behind me, and the words were those which Caprasso had used the day before. These bedlamites were called the Companions of the Rosy Hours, 
and Caprasso had promised great dancing. I hoped to goodness they would not see us, for they had fairly given me the horrors. Peter felt the same, and we both made ourselves very small in that dark corner. But the newcomers had no eyes for us. In a twinkling the pavilion changed from a common saloon, which might have been in Chicago or Paris, to a place of mystery, yes, and of beauty. It became the garden-house of Suleiman the Red, whoever that sportsman may have been. Sandy had said that the ends of the earth converged there, and he had been right. I lost all consciousness of my neighbors, stout German, frock-coated Turk, frowsy Jewess, and saw only strange figures leaping in a circle of light, figures that came out of the deepest darkness to make a big magic. The leader flung some stuff into the brazier, and a great fan of blue light flared up. He was weaving circles, and he was singing something shrill and high, whilst his companions made a chorus with their deep monotone. I can't tell you what the dance was. I had seen the Russian ballet just before the war, and one of the men in it reminded me of this man, but the dancing was the least part of it. It was neither sound nor movement nor scent that wrought the spell, but something far more potent. In an instant I found myself reft away from the present with its dull dangers, and looking at a world all young and fresh and beautiful. The gaudy drop scene had vanished. It was a window I was looking from, and I was gazing at the finest landscape on earth, lit by the pure clean light of the morning. It seemed to be part of the veld, but like no veld I had ever seen. It was wider and wilder and more gracious. Indeed, I was looking at my first youth. I was feeling the kind of immortal light-heartedness which only a boy knows in the dawning of his days. I had no longer any fear of these magic-makers. They were kindly wizards who had brought me into fairyland. Then slowly, from the silence, there distilled drops of music. They came like water falling a long way into a cup, each the essential quality of pure sound. We, with our elaborate harmonies, have forgotten the charms of single notes. The African natives know it, and I remember a learned man once telling me that the Greeks had the same art. Those silver bells broke out of infinite space, so exquisite and perfect, that no mortal words could have been fitted to them. That was the music, I expect, that the morning stars made when they sang together. Slowly, very slowly, it changed. The glow passed from blue to purple, and then to an angry red. Bit by bit the notes spun together till they made a harmony, a fierce, restless harmony, and I was conscious again of the skin-clad dancers beckoning out of their circle. There was no mistake about the meaning now. All the daintiness and youth had fled, and passion was beating the air. Terrible, savage passion, which belonged neither to day nor night, life nor death, but to the half-world between them. I suddenly felt the dancers as monstrous, inhuman, devilish. The thick scents that floated from the brazier seemed to have a tang of new-shed blood. Cries broke from the hearers, cries of anger and lust and terror. I heard a woman sob, and Peter, who was as tough as any mortal, took tight hold of my arm. I now realized that these companions of the rosy hours were the only thing in the world to fear. Rasta and Stum seemed feeble simpletons by contrast. The window I had been looking out of was changed to a prison wall. I could see the mortar between the massive blocks. In a second these devils would be smelling out their enemies like some foul witch-doctors. I felt the burning eyes of their leader looking for me in the gloom. Peter was praying audibly beside me, and I could have choked him. His infernal chatter would reveal us, for it seemed to me that there was no one in the place except us and the magic workers. Then suddenly the spell was broken. 
The door was flung open, and a great gust of icy wind swirled through the hall, driving clouds of ashes from the braziers. I heard loud voices without, and a hubbub began inside. For a moment it was quite dark, and then someone lit one of the flare lamps by the stage. It revealed nothing but the common squalor of a low saloon, white faces, sleepy eyes, and frowsy heads. The drop-piece was there in all its tawdriness. The companions of the rosy hours had gone, but at the door stood men in uniform. I heard a German a long way off murmur, Anvers, bodyguards, and I heard him distinctly, for though I could not see clearly, my hearing was desperately acute. That is often the way when you suddenly come out of a swoon. The place emptied like magic. Turk and German tumbled over each other, while Caprasso wailed and wept. No one seemed to stop them, and then I saw the reason. Those guards had come for us. This must be Stum at last. The authorities had tracked us down, and it was all up with Peter and me. A sudden revulsion leaves a man with a low vitality. I didn't seem to care greatly. We were done, and there was an end of it. It was kismet, the act of God, and there was nothing for it but to submit. I hadn't a flicker of a thought of escape or resistance. The game was utterly and absolutely over. A man who seemed to be a sergeant pointed to us and said something to Caprasso, who nodded. We got heavily to our feet and stumbled towards them. With one on each side of us we crossed the yard, walked through the dark passage and the empty shop, and out into the snowy street. There was a closed carriage waiting, which they motioned us to get into. It looked exactly like the Black Mariah. Both of us sat still, like truant schoolboys, with our hands on our knees. I didn't know where I was going, and I didn't care. We seemed to be rumbling up the hill, and then I caught the glare of lighted streets. "'This is the end of it, Peter,' I said. "'Ya, yeah, Cornelius,' he replied, and that was all our talk. By and by, hours later it seemed, we stopped. Someone opened the door, and we got out, to find ourselves in a courtyard with a huge dark building around. The prison, I guessed, and I wondered if they would give us blankets, for it was perishingly cold. We entered a door, and found ourselves in a big stone hall. It was quite warm, which made me more hopeful about ourselves. A man in some kind of uniform pointed to the staircase, up which we plodded wearily. My mind was too blank to take clear impressions, or in any way to forecast the future. Another warder met us and took us down a passage till we halted at a door. He stood aside and motioned us to enter. I guessed that this was the governor's room, and we should be put through our first examination. My head was too stupid to think— and I made up my mind to keep perfectly mum. Yes, even if they tried thumbscrews. I had no kind of story, but I resolved not to give anything away. As I turned the handle, I wondered idly what kind of sallow Turk or bulging-necked German we should find inside. It was a pleasant room, with a polished wood floor and a big fire burning on the hearth. Beside the fire a man lay on a couch, with a little table drawn up beside him. On that table was a small glass of milk, and a number of patients' cards spread in rows. I stared blankly at the spectacle, till I saw a second figure. It was the man in the skin cap, the leader of the dancing maniacs. Both Peter and I backed sharply at the sight, and then stood stock still. For the dancer crossed the room in two strides and gripped both of my hands. "'Dick, old man,' he cried, "'I'm most awfully glad to see you again.'" End of chapter 11